Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. All right, thanks for listening into the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by author and historian Dr. Diana Butler Bass. So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always great to talk about the future when one is a historian. <laughs> That's what I was counting on. So thank you so much. Um, I've been pleased to see you in person uh, and read a few of your books. And I've really enjoyed your work in the past and um, looking forward to talking to you more and bring some of your, like I said, your expertise and wisdom and learnings into kind of our current situation. So I want to ask you if you would share about your story, uh, however much you'd like to share, and uh, maybe what it meant to be a Christian in the past and how, how that's changed or morphed or developed into who you are now. You know, it's it's always interesting when someone asks me that question, you know, tell me your story. As a matter of fact, I have sitting over my desk a plaque and it has a picture of two women reading a book and underneath it says, tell your story. And so in a very real way, that's my motto as a, as a writer, tell, tell my story, tell the story of others. And yet when somebody says, share what, tell me about your story, I clam up. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Oh my gosh. And there's part of me that's, that thinks I've written a lot of books about that. Because um, one of the things um, in my my first book that was a public piece uh, was a book called Strength for the Journey that was published in early 2002. And Mm -hmm. Phyllis Tickle, the late Phyllis Tickle, wrote the preface for that book. And in the book, she literally credited me with having invented a genre. Wow. I know. It was like so humbling when I got this from her originally, um, you know, to get a, to have her write an intro, uh, to my first real, you know, trade book, and then to have it be so glowing was amazing. But one of the things she said is that it was a really unique mixture of history and theology, along with Mm -hmm. genuine research and memoir. And uh, I think that a lot of people tell their story. Um, and some people who are, are Christians tell their story in relationship to theology, but yeah. I, I do think that it's a little bit less, um, normal or obvious or whatever uh, to put together real research, to try to say something about trends, you know, in our society mm-hmm. and to use one story as a jumping off point, um, in order to understand not just me, but to understand the world. And, and so, so that's what my writing is all about. This use of memoir, not to talk about me, but, but really ultimately to talk about things that are really important um, in the, in the world, in history, in the past, and what is going on around us right now and what the shape of the future might be. So, so when you, 
you asked me to tell my story, the first thing I think about is all of that, you know, this mm-hmm. huge amount of work that I've done. But then the second thing I think about is why in the world did that become my story? Hmm. You know, why do I even care um, about doing that or what caused me to um, take this, take this path um, about storytelling and as a writer and and the only thing I can really think of is um, I, how how it is wrapped up in my whole story, and and that it is I was born in 1959, and I sometimes think of that year, maybe as late as 1960 or as early as maybe 1957. It was mm-hmm. someplace right in that time frame was really the last of an old world. Hmm. And it was the very, very first stirrings of what we would come to know as the world we have now. Yeah. And it's a, it was a really weird time to grow up because there were parts of my growing up that were literally like growing up in the 19th century I grew up Mm. in a German ethnic neighborhood in Baltimore city where we still had Sunday meals sitting around a dinner table with my parents and aunts and uncles and my grandparents. And my grandfather still spoke a little bit of German, even though he was a second generation immigrant Mm -hmm. and we would have all gone to church except for my grandfather. He hated church. He never went, (laughs) but all the rest of us would have gone to church. And then we'd come to my grandfather's house and we'd sit around this big table and we'd eat German food and we'd talk about the world. And, you know, I think about how European working class families, you know, did that for generations. And there was my family still doing it. And my Mm -hmm. grandfather was the patriarch. He, he ruled over his table and he ruled over the lives of the people at that table um, as if he was really kind of like the knight in a village and we were his subjects. Yeah. So, so that, that's part of my growing up in this very, very old world. And then, of course, it was 1959 And so, um, my mom, when she was still alive, she, she would tell me the story about how she was 20 when I was born and, Mm -hmm. um, she was a campaign worker for the Kennedy campaign. And so here she was 1960, um, as a fairly new wife and a new mother. And she did literature distribution and organ, you know, went door to door getting people to vote for Kennedy. And she swears that, uh, among my first words, uh, was the word Kendi. Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> so, so I, so I, you know, if we think about the Kennedy presidency as really beginning to open the vision toward, um, a new diverse, pluralistic America with, um, that, that went beyond the old wasp establishment and the opening of different kinds of roles uh, for men and women and people of color. Um, that was really that crack in time when all of that began to change. And so, so I was really born right there. And 
I think that because I was born in this really unique and beautiful time and, and I've often found that people who were born right around 1960 are a lot of them have very similar interests that I have. And one of the people that I don't know personally, but certainly have observed is, um, you know, Barack Obama was born in Mm -hmm. 1961 and the worldview that I share with Barack Obama, uh, is has so much in common even though he's a you know biracial man and i'm a white woman it's Mm -hmm. like we really kind of see the contours of both the past and the future in similar ways and that our own story is so caught up in these greater uh sorts of the greater flow of history Mm -hmm. even though he's very famous and i'm obviously less so um we live in that. And Mm -hmm. I think that I've tried certainly to be incredibly faithful with that story and with that position in history. One of the things I like most about your work is I think of this in your book grounded, how you kind of weave your stories into, um, into the book and help that frame the narrative of what you're going to address theologically. In seminary, I studied a class we I took called um, Theology as Autobiography, or it might have been Reverse Autobiography as Theology, and that's what I think about when I think about your work often, the way you're able to weave together your story and theology. I love that. Um, I'm curious, where did you go to seminary and who taught the class? Yeah, I'll give a shout out to uh, Phillips Theological Seminary in, uh, actually there's Phillips Seminary now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Joe Bessler, I believe. If I remember correctly, was the class we read? Who did we read? I can't remember now, but um, it was a it was a fun class. I really enjoyed it. I I actually love that because um, over the years I've quipped that when women write theology, people refer to it as memoir, but mm. when uh, men write theology, it's called theology. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what else? Had, in a very real way, what else was Augustine writing? Mm. or Martin Luther, or even Thomas Aquinas. I think we did have to read Augustus, or Augustine as, um, but we read uh, Bondi, I can't remember the full name. Oh, Roberta Uh, Bondi, wonderful. Roberta Bondi, um, Teresa of Avila, and I think, I don't remember the the author, but it was, the book was Shang Tung, something like that compound based in um, World War II, uh, Japan or China. Oh yeah, I, I I know which book you're talking about, but um, it's really an interesting thing, you know. Is that I mean, what else is history made of? In a very real stories, sense, in, yeah. in a sense, is other than the stories of the people who navigate through particular times and try to uh, live well or courageously or with meaning in those times. And, and then, you know, there are some of us who write those stories down and, um, Mm. you know, part of the task of his, of traditional history is to go back and try to uncover those narratives. Um, many of which never were published, you know, Mm -hmm. some of which exist only in rare forms and libraries and fragments and letters and things like that. Um, but then others are people who did manage to get their their stories published between the you know covers of a book, and 
and so that's really you know an important part of history and people sometimes talk about you know institutional history or the history of war economic mm-hmm. history but i've always been of a mind that the very best history um comes from those old journals and diaries and letters and um, the perspectives that pretty ordinary people uh, brought to the wars or the economic challenges or the environmental changes or the big questions of justice that surrounded their lives. I, I think that that's a much more interesting part of history than just tracking, you know, who was, who was Pope of what, you know, yeah. at what time or, um, you know, what major theologian taught at what seminary or however you want to cast institutional history. Yeah. It almost sounds like listening to you, it almost sounds like, like this telling these stories, retelling these stories, finding these stories is, is a spiritual practice in a way for you. Is that fair? It very much is. Um, and I think it's wrapped up in the practices of, what I would consider to be memory. Hmm. Um, you know, it, I've, a lot of my work over the years has been about tradition. And mm-hmm. there was a book I wrote fairly early on, 2004, uh, called The Practicing Congregation. It was mm-hmm. pub- published then by um, Alban Institute Press. Yeah. And there's a chapter in there where I talk about what I call fluid retraditioning. And that is the idea that tradition is not a static event uh, uh, that you, that's like a museum piece, something you pass mm-hmm. down from one generation to another. But instead, there's an active part of tradition uh, whereby it's more like you, you inherit something and then you have to figure out what to do with it. And oh, okay. so each successive generation, you know, does something different and that in a sense tradition is not nearly as much as the of like a vase as it is like inheriting the clay Hmm. and and so this i this whole sense of what do you do with the past when it's your turn um is really a powerfully interesting question yeah that is interesting yeah and I think it has to do with memory and has to do with um, respect, you know, respecting what you've received, but also respecting the future that you'll never see. Um, and uh, figuring out, you know, how do you both care for what you've gotten and yet treat it in such a way that it, it, it moves on to the next group of human beings so that they can they'll like what you did. <laughs> there's, there's almost nothing worse to me than um, the idea of working with tradition and then having the next group of people who get this, the, the material to say, mm-hmm. Oh, that's just crap. You know, let's just burn it. And sounds like a, sounds like a lot of mainline churches dealing with that issue right now. <laughs> yes, it is. And it, but it really, I mean, I, I think that there's a hurtful element to that. Yeah. Um, that hurts uh, the people who fashioned it in a particular way, uh, mm-hmm. but it also hurts the people who have received, who are who are at the creative part of the task too. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where there's that's where memory comes in, because 
one of the things that I'm seeing right now is a whole lot of conversations on social media yep. where literally I'm watching people who are in their thirties say things that were said 25 or 30 years ago um, wow. where, where there was incredible research done, incredible books written. And yeah. there there's literally no memory, even just two and a half or three decades ago that yeah. connects this younger group of people who are just coming into leadership in churches and religious organizations with it, with this work. And, oh my gosh, I, that just, that that's heartbreaking to me. I'm glad I'm not the only one who notices that, <laughs> to be honest, because that's on Twitter, especially I see that all the time. And I think like, Hey, like there's some great, scholars and theologians who have written this very same thing that you should check out. But and it, to me, at least it seems like it's, well, I don't want to throw stones, but it seems like it's largely within many evangelical communities where interestingly enough, that's kind of what they've done is kind of said, Hey, this is the tradition we've received. We're kind of, it's our turn now, but we're going to like just throw it away in many ways. Yeah. And I think there tends to be a misunderstanding sometimes of of what you've been handed, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I think in mainline circles, one of the things that I've seen is that there's, and this is interesting because there was a story in the the New York Times a few months ago about how young Catholics were re-embracing tradition, and um, the person who wrote the story herself considers her, you know, considers herself part of this this movement and talked about how, you know, Oh, you want to save the world, um, you know, go into a darkened church and uh, wave incense around. And um, what was absolutely fascinating is that you know, 25 years I was researching churches where baby boomers were doing exactly that, hmm. where they had sort of rejected the more sterile elements of, in particular mainline tradition. Yeah. And they weren't crazy about how, what a, you know, kind of a brain heavy tradition it was. And they were looking for kind of more romantic impulse. And th there's entire books that I've written that have whole chapters on kind of a, a rediscovery of the romantic impulse within Christianity. And I wrote those mm -hmm. more than a decade ago. And, um, and I've, preached sermons on this and talked about it in all kinds of clergy events. And then you see it and it's like in the pages of the New York times, it's like, excuse me, you know, I just <laughs> sit there and kind of raise my hand. Uh, um, this is not new. Um, this is an impulse that's sort of been running as a very interesting thread uh, through much of American Protestantism for, I, I'd say, I'd say since, probably about 1960 or so. Hmm. And um, this this kind of return to the romantic and a kind of a re-Catholicization um, of American Protestantism. And so it's, a, it's, it's, if you think it's an impulse that just started with a bunch of people who call themselves weird Christian Twitter, mm -hmm. you actually miss that it's a multi-generational phenomenon of a reclaiming of Christian practice and a deeper understanding of the nature of history. Wow. Well, 
I feel like we have so much to talk about right there that I want to dive into, but there's more questions that I already wrote down that I want to ask you. So if I may. Sure. Let's transition. Um, I want to just ask you, as a historian, we find ourselves in this unique uh, situation. And my first question is like, is there a historical precedent? Is there a historical comparison for this level of disruption? I'll give an example. I serve in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and there's a there's an old church in Denver, South Broadway Christian Church. It's been around probably close to 130, 150 years. And uh, in the records, I guess they have that they closed for three weeks during the Spanish flu. So I'm curious, what else, does anything else come to mind? Well, the closest thing is the, um, you know, the Black Death in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But that's a really long time ago. It's hard yeah. for people to remember 25 years ago. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so getting people to remember back. Hard to remember 25 days ago and this is where we're at right now. <laughs> that's true. I, I do have a tr- trouble remembering that too. Um, you know, but getting people to think back uh, to the 13, 1400s is a pretty big task. Um, and and I, the disruptive nature of what happened in the Middle Ages is actually pretty instructive yeah. um, because people didn't really understand at first where this thing was coming from. You know, they just thought that God was punishing them or that the devil yeah. had landed in their village and was killing everybody. And so, you know, what people's sort of first impulse was um, oftentimes was to run into the church, you know? Mm. And of course, when um, people were very sick, uh, priests and monks and nuns and the religious of the day did, their job. And that is they went and they visited sick and took care of people who were, who were ill. And of course they also were people who often were handling bodies, you know, funerals and last rites and all these kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And so while the, you know, the black death was spread, you know, primarily by, you know, fleas, insect bites. um, You know, if you're around a lot of people, I mean, there's the sanitation was so horrible um, in the middle ages. And, you know, if you're around a lot of people, uh, those people are going to be infested with those same fleas, you know? So it's yeah. not just, and there's going to be rats running around everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And so, so what happened was, is that where there were people, there was the infestation. And so that meant that when people went running into the churches, they actually brought, you know, vermin with them and people got sick in the churches. And then the same as when the church went to the world to care for the ill, they got ill. So what happened was in many places in Western, in Western Europe in particular, is that the, the, the clergy ranks were just decimated. Hmm. There was, you know, they died in huge numbers. And then of course in, in um, monasteries too. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, And so that level of disruption was literally by death is that the normal functioning of the church and its practices of, of the sacraments and its sort of spiritual benefits um, literally disappeared overnight. And, you know, who are you going to confess to if there's no priest left in your building? And so in the middle ages that, uh, that meant that the established church was greatly diminished um, by the plague and uh, this sort of the pop popular religious spiritual practices that people invented for themselves really 
That's um, interesting. Yeah. See, now I'm seeing the correlation. Yeah. And those popular practices began to spread. And, um, you know, people, that's how people sort of managed death is they mm-hmm. invented their own kinds of rituals and liturgies and uh, songs and imagine uh, theological imaginings, you know, uh, um, about death and where death came from and life after death. And so there was this, you know, development of this, this, this popular religious impulse um, around death. And um, it wasn't from the church. It was from really the people. See, that's interesting. That was the next question I was going to ask you is how is the current crisis shaping religious practices? Because I've heard stories about how, uh, I've heard the story, I don't know if it's true or not, in the, like in the, during the time of the Black Death, like that's when the Catholics stopped. They did something different with communion. Supposedly the Disciples of Christ did something different with communion during the Spanish flu. And you've been involved with this, I saw with you on Twitter, is the, <laughs> the hubbub about Episcopalians and communion now. Right. Yeah, well, what became obvious is that you couldn't celebrate um, communion in mm-hmm. these different settings of pandemic. Um, and, you know, smallpox was a similar way and typhoid fever, you know, smaller kind of epidemics rather than pandemics. Yeah. Um, you just couldn't gather people in, in churches safely. And so, you know, churches were closed in the middle ages and that meant no communion. And um, one of the things that I know as a historian that, I, I think it's literally hilarious uh, to see uh, these more liturgical churches argue right now. Well, you know, uh, we are calling the people of God to a fast from communion yeah. until this is over. Well, yeah, you can call for one of those. <laughs> I mean, they're going to do it. <laughs> but, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that although the records are sketchy, um, you can absolutely guarantee that there were people who were doing some level of wine and bread or feeding one another communion or feeding people communion to their dying relatives and, you know, all this kind of stuff, because that's what people do. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, right now, a couple of the major more, you know, liturgical denominations uh, have these uh, non-voluntary fasts, which is another thing that it really gets me as a, uh, it makes me more Protestant than I've ever been. Uh, <laughs> is that you can't force people to have a fast. It yeah. ceases being fa- a fast at that point. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is a dictate from an institution. Mm-hmm. And and so there, see, that's where I, oh, you know, yeah. I, the ghost of Martin Luther is rising up above my, <laughs> my office right now. Um, and and um, so it's not a fast. It's an institutional dictate. And yeah. um you know, it's pretty clear. I, I, I've said this on occasion. It always gets me in trouble. It, it's pretty clear that what it's from is that uh, the churches are terrified that if people somehow celebrate communion on their own, that one, when the pandemic is over, they won't go back to church. And two, yeah. if the clergy aren't in control of bread and wine, uh, what good are the clergy? Yeah. Let me jump. Let me jump into that if I can. Sure. A, I was going to ask you a related question to that. Like I've been thinking about pre-COVID shutdown. I was like a four to five time a week gym guy, and now I'm. Um, you know, gyms are reopening in my state of Colorado. I'm not going pre-vaccine, and even more so. You know, I'm working out with 
bands and walking and jump rope. And I'm like, am I ever going to go back to the gym? And to me, it relates exactly to the point you're saying of, and I wonder, like, what is this going to mean for the future of the church? I know there's, I've heard many Christian leaders and and uh, pastors who say, oh, this is, people are going to come pouring back into church when this is over. And I'm, I'm skeptical and I'm curious what you think. Well, you know, part of, part of what I trust to always be the case with the future is that it is what we make of it. Hmm. Okay. And so I don't think that there's any sort of predestined sort of path that's out mm-hmm. there, you know, that God, God's finger is directing from heaven. Yeah. Um, and so what I, what I think will happen, I mean, what I suspect will happen is that there will be people who will really be very eager, especially once there's a vaccine. Yeah, um, yep. to get back into a, a, a building. I feel it myself. You know, I'm I I I want to sing again with people. You know. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, and uh, so you know, there are people who are who are going to really want to do that, and will will be happy when it happens. Um, but there's other things that are going to happen as well. You know, there will be people who discovered. Hey, I kind of liked being able to go to church with a number of different congregations via the internet. And that's cool. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of my best friends uh, sent me an email just the other day. Uh, We were college roommates, so she's my age. And uh, she and her husband just joined a church. They live in Pennsylvania, and they just Mm -hmm. joined a church in California. Wow. Yeah, and the church calls it uh, it calls it its diaspora congregation wow and yeah. so, so this diaspora congregation it had a, a multi-week uh con- what they called a connect class you know essentially mm-hmm. a membership class and it put people you know together so that they would get to know each other via zoom and talked about what church and diaspora could look like and that um, they were going to be a real part of the church. But it's the diaspora congregation. So yeah. so this church now, when it goes back into business, it'll have an 8.30 in the morning service. It'll have a 10 o'clock service. It'll have you know an 11.15 service. And it'll have a diaspora congregation. And it'll probably have you know, like a, a Wednesday night thing, too. Yeah. So this kind of leads naturally in in another question I want to ask, because this is kind of a trend I'm seeing is that many churches are kind of attracting people from long distances. And I think about like just from a business economic kind of market idea that essentially there's less like there's less customers for that whatever churches are in Pennsylvania, if that, you know, if that if the couple, you know, is going to a church in California that leaves less customers for the local churches in Pennsylvania. You'll forgive me. I'm working on an MBA right now. So I'm thinking <laughs> in terms of marketing, but this is something I thought about like the, the, the macroeconomic effects of this. We're kind of seeing this in the pandemic in businesses with the kind of the small mom and pop businesses struggling, going out of business while the targets, the Walmarts, obviously Amazon, like they're going to be fine. And I'm curious, like, how do you see this affecting churches on a local level? 
Well, it could be, I mean, just as much as anything. I mean, the, the, the thing that's, I think, amazing about the internet is it is not dependent on size. And yeah, so that's true. I, I, I tell you, you know, how big that congregation in California is, although you probably got an indication that it is a somewhat larger congregation if yeah. it has three services. Um, but the truth of the matter is that I've gone to a couple of churches in the last few weeks that have one of the churches I went to has 30 members hmm. and it's a church in San Francisco. And I'd always, uh, I have a friend who goes there and I'd always wanted to go, but every time I'm in San Francisco, I'm preaching at some other church. Yeah. So, so I've never been able to go to this, this, uh, my friend's church. And this time she sent me a link and I went and, um, it was utterly delightful. Nobody knew how to use zoom. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was clumsy and amateur and so loving. And the, the minister sat in her living room with her husband and uh, her, I guess, a couple of her kids and read the sermon to the congregation. And the husband was sitting there and, you know, helping to lead the liturgy. It was lovely. And so, see, I think that's the interesting thing is it's not just an issue of, you know, like mom and pop churches are going to be driven out of business by the big, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, mega churches. Right. You know, in a sense, you know, those mega churches have had online productions for a really long time. And you could always join those churches by some sort of online measure. But what this has mm-hmm. opened up is this whole, we've now been, be, we can visit almost any church. And we are getting an entirely different vision of the sort of the spiritual ecology um, of the nation through all of this. And I think the, 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 the dividing line is going to not be big or small. The dividing line is going to be, are you committed to maintaining things exactly as they were? Hmm, In other words, In other words, are you just going to, you know, go online yep. and get through this and then you're going to go back to everything you wanted, you, you already did anyway? Yeah. Or do you see this as a moment of creativity? Yeah. And genuine hospitality and reach. And I think that that's the dividing line between people who literally do not want to change, who want the rule book in play, who, who cannot imagine a different kind of church. And people who are saying, hey, you know, this is really interesting because it's changing us. Mm -hmm. And we're willing to go where it's taking us. Well, I like that. That's a much more hopeful uh, (laughs) prediction than my own. (laughs) I have seen some uh, predictions that we're going to just go plowing right into a religious recession um, after this is over. And um, I mean, that's the, I, I, it seems like there's three, three major scenarios. One is yeah. the religious recession and that's going to be just people literally so used to not going to church combined right. with the already um, drastically bad numbers about people leaving religion behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that religious recession is one possible future. The other possible future is everybody is so hungry that they all go running back 
I think that one is so overly optimistic that it really is a little. Fingers crossed for that one, though. I'll say fingers I crossed. I, I wish that that's the case because I wish I could t- cheer my friends up and say, oh, yeah, it'll be just fine. It'll be cool. Um, but, you know, I think people might come back for a little bit. But then I think that when they see that it's not all that different than the first time they left, <laughs> they hmm. might they might yeah. just say, OK, well, here, you know, it's here. It'll always. You know, people will get used to it again and say, oh, it'll always be here now. And, well, this is uh, kind of go back to the point you made earlier about what in the Middle Ages, the kind of lessening of the need for clergy as people created spiritual practices amongst themselves. Like this is kind of what we're seeing through social media and Twitter, yep. like the flattening of hierarchy where anybody can get on Twitter and develop a following and become an authority and I can see the same thing for like the lack of need for clergy as much as I hate that and educated clergy because people can develop spiritual practices and followings on their own. Right. Yes. And that's of course what the educated clergy have always been concerned about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, oh my gosh. You know, if you, if so-and-so gets on Twitter and starts developing their own thing, what's to keep that person from becoming like Jim Jones? Yeah. That's what you always hear. Yep. But, but, you know, that's the, that is such black and white thinking. That's the, the idea that we either have an educated clergy in a hierarchical system with strict rules and roles of authority, or you have Jim Jones forcing Kool-Aid down people's throat in a, in a jungle. Whereas the truth of it is, is that, that there's so much in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, and I have this very good friend who, um, I, I, well, he's become a better, a good friend, I think, in this last year. Um, and he's a he's a, a church a, a Scottish Episcopal. Priest. Okay. And so, not Church of Scotland, but an Episcopalian in the Episcopal Church of Scotland. And so, um, he he doesn't love the idea of online communion because uh, you know he's a priest. He wants to do yeah, his yeah. building, you know, with all his people and his stuff, and you know where it's good and he can trust how it's being done but he also said that to me in a public setting um that the church has not been honest with the fact that people are going to do communion on their own anyway Mm, yeah and the better path the path of valor was to provide sort of guidelines uh for how families or groups of individuals or even individual Christians might participate in meaningful liturgy, especially communion um, online or in their kitchens. You know, it's just like, don't say, wait until you have to take it from the real priest or, you know, clearly you're all going to wind up like Jim Jones leading people into hell. But instead saying, you know, hey, we're going to, authorize this sort of temporary celebration where we want you all to have the benefit of the table and then to teach people how to do it. Yeah. That's so interesting because even in my own context, the church I've been leading, like this is a question we wrestled with. How do we do communion online? And for several weeks we fasted just because it was the most reasonable. I I thought the most, plausible and we could justify to say, hey, we're fasting to, you know, pray for 
people in need, you know, healthcare workers, those sick economically, et cetera. But then some of our leaders, lay leaders said, hey, you know, we, it'd be really nice to take communion together. And it was lay leadership who largely initiated it in my context. That's great. Actually, I love hearing that. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break and uh, we'll come back for some closing questions. All right, we're back with Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, and uh, you can take these closing questions, Diana, as seriously or as fun as you'd like to. So you said you were ready for this one, but if you're Pope for a day, what's your big move? Women priests. <laughs> <laughs> Women bishops. A woman pope. <laughs> that's my, that's my, the day of the woman. <laughs> All right. I love it. Here's a question um, for you. This is great as a historian. What theological Christian figure, or I suppose we can widen it out for you, uh, would you want to meet or bring back to life today? Oh, my gosh. I'm always a little nervous about a question like this because people that I admire, I probably, if I met them, I would think that they were pills. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, it's actually not anybody that's too terribly historic. I just... I really, 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 really miss my friend, Marcus Borg. Mm. Yeah. He was such a great friend of mine. And he's been gone from us now five years. And there is not a day that I don't think to myself, what would Marcus make of this? Mm. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm less interested in bringing back Hildegard of Bingen, but she's my second choice. Um <laughs> So I'm afraid I might not like her. Um, but I'll say uh, it's, I grew Marcus. up independent Baptist, and I say um, Marcus Borg's heart of Christianity is probably the reason I'm still Christian today. So I'm I'm forever grateful for his work. I love that book, and it was uh, one of the things I loved most about him. Is that, and and this is one of those things you know there are a lot of people right now on Twitter who are that that generation that are reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, who say bad things about Marcus all the time. And I I always look at that and I, I go, wow, you know, it's like, it, it, they have no idea really um, because it, I don't think they really read uh, what he did. And one of the things I loved most, loved most about him as a, as a public figure of Christianity and the thing that I hold myself to is that is uh, changing in one's books. And if you read Marcus's sort of whole corpus, there's a thread of things that he cares about, about, you know, historical scholarship and reading Mm -hmm. the Bible well and stuff like that. But you also can watch this. He was a very shy man in many ways. And what you can watch is this sort of undertow in his books and every book went deeper and deeper and deeper and revealed more of his heart. Hmm. And so when uh, I think Heart of Christianity was the book that was the sort of the announcing to the world that real change um, in, his, in his work. And um, the last few pieces he wrote, I also really loved the book Convictions. Mm. 
think it's a beautiful way of talking about beliefs that are experiential and deeply held without having to talk about doctrine yeah. you know, in that cold way that turns so many people off. Well, how that about way, next time? What, uh, that's what I bring back. Next time someone's knocking uh, Marcus Borg on Twitter, just tweet me and I'll come get him with you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just think that he died too soon. I think that, you know, he would have had a lot to say um, for this moment. And um, even if he maybe was, he, he would have been about 80 now, uh, nearing mm-hmm. 80. Um, you know, even if he didn't want to write another book you know, just even having him around to help guide some of us who are a little bit younger and say, Hey, have you thought about, and that's, I I miss that. Um, Yeah. You know, this reminds me of, I feel like a question I want to ask you, if I may, thinking about in our current context, when we think about historical figures, we'd want to meet or bring back to life. I can't help but thinking about it also in the context where we find ourselves with so many historical figures, so many statues coming down, so many things being renamed. How do you, as a historian, um, how do you, how do we balance um, some of the great accomplishments or actions or or thoughts of people? Uh, for instance, like Martin Luther, we've referenced him was also horribly anti-Semitic, yet he has a whole whole segment of Christianity that's based off his life's work. How do we, how do we balance that? Yeah. You know, there are different ways of doing this. Uh, this, I don't know when this, the podcast will appear, but um, we're taping on the 29th of June. And yeah. uh, this morning there was on uh, Morning Joe, the MSNBC show, Eddie Glaude from Princeton and John Meacham were talking about this very thing um, about statues. And um, I, I was really taken. It was a great conversation. And Eddie Glaude is a little bit more taken down. And mm-hmm. um, John Meacham is a little bit more, uh, let's think about it mm-hmm. and provide context. And, and so I sat there and I, and I was listening to them and they're clearly, they're clearly friends. Uh, Meacham teaches at Vanderbilt and Glaude um, at Princeton. And, and so the, the respectful way that they engage this and, uh, and I really am more of a Meacham type person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think that putting, taking a lot of these statues, I do believe a lot of them should be taken down. Yeah. Right? I live in a town where we just took down the Confederate memorial statue and it needed to come down. And so that is good. And I also went to a church for several years where I was the Christian education director, where we had plaques to Robert E. Lee and George Washington in the sanctuary. And those have been taken down and they needed to be taken down and and they were moved into a different, they were moved into a whole different part of the building where they became part of a historical exhibit. And so, um, so there are things that do need to be taken down. Um, but I also think that a lot of the kinds of statues and things that went up um, tell us things not so much about the people that they were trying to represent nearly as much as they tell us about the people who put the statues up. Oh, great point. And to me, that becomes the moment of being able to talk about history. Yeah. And you know, there's this really interesting statue in Washington, D.C. of Abraham Lincoln uh, freeing the slaves. 
It's the mm-hmm. Emancipation Statue. And it's a glorious, huge bronze of Lincoln. And at Lincoln's feet, there's a black man kneeling in chains. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, wow. good try. Yeah, quite <laughs> missed it there. Um, and what was what was absolutely fascinating about this statue is that um, when it was made, when it was cast, there were several different different uh, sort of ways it could have gone, and including ideas that the artist had. And the artist had originally wanted to have a this this one figure, the enslaved person on their knees, breaking free of the chains. But they also wanted to have a black soldier, and there was some other figure that was going to go um, go into the statue as well of an, of another African American who was already a freedman, I think. And so it would have been had it been Lincoln and these three figures, you know, it would have been a much more fulsome kind of expression mm-hmm. of the moment, and it also would have reminded people looking at the statue that you know black people themselves contributed an enormous amount to their freedom. So it, that would have been a more fulsome picture of the reality of the black community at the time of emancipation, people who fought for their own freedom and who people who didn't ever need to be freed because they were already freed, but they were being treated horribly because of the, the, the horrible injustice of this whole system and the way it affected yeah. America. So, so anyway, um, now we're talking, they're talking about what to do with that statue. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the solution that I would love to see to this is on the day that statue was dedicated, uh, Frederick Douglass was there and criticized Abraham Lincoln in his speech, mm-hmm. saying that he talked about the dignity of black people. And so on the very day that the statue was dedicated, <laughs> Frederick Douglass had something to say about it. Wow. And, and so what I think would just be fantastic is to take is to keep that statue there and talk and and literally put in the context how it could have had the the black union soldier and the free mm-hmm. freed black person and the enslaved person getting up from the chains along yeah. with Lincoln. But that wasn't the choice that was made by the committee that ultimately selected this statue. And put up another statue right next to it of Frederick Douglass. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then memorialize that speech mm-hmm. of Douglass's, where he criticized Lincoln, saying how Lincoln was the president for the white man and not the black man. Hmm. And you could have those two statues side by side. And what incredible historical point that makes. Yeah. Because the white person looking at that is then, I think any, any fair-minded white person looking at that would understand what Douglas was really saying hmm. and say, oh, I thought that Lincoln was a hero. And Lincoln was a hero because mm-hmm. he was my hero. Mm-hmm. And I want to be more like Lincoln than I want to be like Jefferson Davis. Or Lee, yeah. yeah or Lee. Uh, but there was more to the story. Yeah. And maybe the real hero was Frederick Douglass. Hmm. And it's yeah. like, wow, why well, can't really be Frederick Douglass? Can I? 
And so, so that's what I really love. I, I would love to see with a lot more of this public art rather than it just sort of stripped down and hidden away and, you know, dark garages for a century before somebody mm-hmm. calls it out and figures out something yeah. to do with it um, is to make contextual commitments of public, other public art that would immediately surround some of the more ambiguously hard to relate to statues. And if you do that, you put a whole new narrative around them. And then that becomes our narrative. And yeah. 50 years from now, somebody else will come along and say, wow, why did those people do that? You know? And um, maybe it will be obvious to them, and maybe it won't be, and maybe then they'll want to put up a third statue. <laughs> yeah, very well. <laughs> so uh, it's a... Yeah, these are these are interesting questions, but there's iconoclasm has such a long history in Western culture, and it is no surprise to me, even though it always kind of made me sad, even reading it historically, that when new groups of people uh, come into power, have newly a new sense of dignity or a new sort of political. Um, mm-hmm. place in society they almost always rip down the old statues yeah <laughs> it's just what people do so. that's so interesting about the idea of iconoclasm because i think most western christians would say hey we're not iconoclasts yet it seems our society we are oh my gosh the way people treat robert e lee in virginia he's god mm-hmm. and so to tear down a statue of him is essentially an act of you know you're taking the ta- the statue of the saint and you're tearing it down which is you know that happened in the what is it the the seventh and eighth century in uh the late roman empire byzantium it happened Mm -hmm. again in the reformation really strongly happened again in the english civil wars you know this is just something that happens um and you know people have pretty strong feelings about it when People, the group of people who have been oppressed finally come into power. Often, those people who are now in power take it out on works of art and architecture and public spaces, and you know, destroy the old thing and set up something new. Mm -hmm. Keeps archaeologists in business. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Well, let me ask one last question. I appreciate your time here. You mentioned Phyllis Tickle, and one of the things I think about with her, and kind of you related to it, is you know these tearing down of statues being a thing that's happened repeatedly at different points in history. What do you? One of Phyllis Tickle's points, as I understand it, was kind of around the idea that this this time and place we find ourselves in is kind of a seminal moment in church history. What are your thoughts on that, and how do you see like history remembering us for for this time? Well, I have no idea how history will remember us. I only know how I hope history could mm-hmm. remember us. I I would love history to remember us as being brave. Okay. You know, how did those people manage to live in that time when the planetary systems of climate were collapsing and when their you know their senses of history were being so deeply challenged and things they mm-hmm. cherished they're being turned on their heads. And how did how did people do that? How did people survive that? And the, and what I want to see happen is I want us to be brave. Hmm. 
And yeah. I want us to face it all and make the best possible choices that we can make so that when our um, descendants look back on us, they'll say, I want to be just like them. Wow. Well, that's great. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Where can folks find out more about you? Oh, well, uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Diana Butler Bass. I have a public Facebook page under my my name, Diana Butler Bass. Mm-hmm. And um, I also have a newsletter that people can sign up for if they go to my website. It's a pretty obvious place to sign up. And pretty soon, by the end of uh, summer 2020, I will have started a Substack um, page. And that will also be up be under my name. So, awesome. so there are lots of different ways people can get in touch with me. And I hope that folks do. Um, I, I love engaging people on social media and I like sharing what I'm writing and working on. And I, I love hearing voices I normally wouldn't hear. Is there another book project in the works in the, speaking of that? I am. It's a book. It's due to come out. I think the final week of March, maybe the third week of March of 2021. It's mm-hmm. um, called freeing Jesus. Wow. It's a memoir of me and Jesus. <laughs> oh, so we're back to the beginning memoirs. This we really are. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, blessings on your work and your ministry and, uh, and your work uh, in in the public sector. So thank you so much for your time and go in peace. Oh, well, thank you for having me. These are great things to talk about. And um, I hope you'll stay well and be healthy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, Do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace. Do you have something to say? Are there people who want or need to hear from you? Have you always wanted to start a podcast but don't know where to start? Welcome to Resonate Media, where our mission is to amplify you. At Resonate Media, we focus on helping underrepresented voices and aspiring podcasters get started by providing equipment, expertise, and experience to help you launch a podcast on topics like faith formation, leadership, spirituality, racial conciliation, and LGBTQIA activism. To get started, visit ResonateMediaPro.com or email Lauren at ResonateMediaPro.com. Don't let the confusion, complications, and costs of hosting, recording, editing, and distribution hold you back. The world needs to hear what you have to say. Resonate Media can help your voice be heard. Our mission is to amplify you.